and welcome to We Are History. My name is Angela Barnes. Oh, it's all got confused, John. That makes oh. me John O'Farrell. This is comedy. Oh, what have you done? It's the only joke that was available <laughs> to me with the material I had. Um, we are in series four. We are 3,000 miles apart, but we're doing this by the wonders of modern technology. Yeah, that's the, that, that was just the terms of John's injunction. <laughs> that's it. That's what the, the judge said. I couldn't get any closer. <laughs> so we are today doing a subject that Angela has chosen. Um Angela, what have you got for us this week? So, we are talking today, John, about MI9. When you suggested this, I saw I saw, I saw, saw M19 and I thought that might be a motorway. <laughs> I chose MI9 for this one because uh, there was a book came out last year by Helen Fry about yes. MI9, um, which I've read for this episode and I really wanted yes. to read it. So, I suggested that we talk about it. And um, I will say now that the book is incredibly detailed and I do advise people to read it because it's really interesting. We're not going to be able to cover anywhere near all of everything that's in that book today. So we're going to focus on the sort of slightly more interesting, more fun bits. That's what we do. That's what we do. We do the fun bits history. Yeah. So to start off with, maybe I should explain what MI9 is. So you've all heard of MI5 and MI6. So just as a little refresher, John, MI5? Uh, That's Military Intelligence, Miss. Uh, Domestic Counterintelligence and Security Agency. That's right. So that's domestic counterintelligence, MI6 then? Uh, that's uh, the SIS or Secret Intelligence Service, Miss. That's right, though. Although we call it MI6 because it's Military Intelligence Section 6 and because we can't really call it Secret Intelligence Service when we all know about it. <laughs> no, quite. Um, and, and, of course, MI6 is your... They gather and analyse intelligence from foreign lands, like what that James Bond bloke does. I've never watched a James Bond You've film. never watched a James Bond film? Never watched a James well, Bond film. Not one? That is Not insane. one Ever. I am 45 years old. I will be by the time this goes out. And I have never watched James Oh, OK. Bond well, um, you'd probably, you know, watch one, you get the general idea. Oh, I, I, I could do a quiz on James Bond, I reckon, because it's so <laughs> part of, you know, culture. just by osmosis and, and popular culture. I reckon I could still do well in a James Bond quiz. Maybe we'll test that one day. One of our live shows we do next year, we'll do that. Well, this uh, uh, the Ian Fleming, the author of the original books, touches on this story, doesn't he, Angela? But um, he does. He he yeah. um, does crop up in this. Yeah. So MI five at various times. Sorry, the MIs, the military intelligence numbers. There were ten sections in the World War One. There were ten sections, and it rose to seventeen in World War Two. So you had went up it to MI seventeen. So you had, for example, MI1 was code breaking, which started right. in World War One, and that eventually became what we know now as GCHQ. Right. Um, some of them were quite geographically specific, um, and so they all eventually came under MI6 for all foreign lands. So, for right. example, MI2 was Russia and Scandinavia at one point. What? But now that all just comes under MI6. Scandinavia? MI4. Sorry, sorry I've got to stop you there. Yeah, spying on Scandinavia. What? Well, it was very close to Russia, John. We have found out what Lego are developing. John, how can you say that when you and I have done a podcast that was about us invading Iceland? All right, all right. Okay, all right, do continue. What was MI4 for? MI4, supply military maps. Right. Oh, MI13, who's going to do that one? No one's going to work for them, are they? Yeah, no one that one. Really unlucky. It was actually um, Eastern Europe, MI13. Okay. There you go. but the one we're looking at today, John, yep. came about at the very beginning of World War II, and mm-hmm. that is MI9. And its role was to help Allied personnel who were stuck behind enemy lines. So, for example, if an aircraft had been shot down, um, it was to help them to evade capture or to assist those who had been captured by the enemy to escape. So during World War II, 
around 35,000 allied wow. personnel escaped or evaded capture and returned to the safety of an allied That's incredible, 35,000. So probably most of them 000. not probably most of them not from prisoner war camps but for hiding behind enemy lines, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So you had the, 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 these two strands. Yeah. Escape is obviously if you've been in a camp, you know, you've been arrested or whatever and then you escape or evasion is just you've found yourself behind enemy lines and you've hidden until you can get to safety. Wow, that's um, amazing. I mean, um, yeah. uh, you, you've basically chosen, you know, war films, actually. You're doing all the sort of, you know, the wooden horse, coldest, great escape. You're going for the whole, you know, Bridge on the yeah. River Kwai, everything. It's just it's it's, I'm going so on holiday, Boise. John. This is so Boise, Angela, what you're doing here. Oh, don't you start on that down gender lines, John O'Farrell. No, basically, I'm um, I'm going to Leipzig in December. Oh, you're um, going to go to Colditz? And I'm, I'm going to go to Colditz, so I, I wanted to read the book before I went. Oh, so that's God. why we're I used to love that kid. I used to love that programme when I was a kid. My mum would let me stay up late to watch Colditz. I played the board game Escape from Colditz, but it's... Yeah. Um, I think it might be a bit easier than actual escape. It probably is. Yeah. Is. Old um, yeah. Arthur Smith, who's an old friend of mine, the comedian, mm. he, his dad was in Colditz and he took him oh. back there for a Radio 4 programme. And um, mm. he said the, the uh, guide was sort of uh, taking them around the tour and um, uh, old Sid Smith was uh, sort of putting them straight on things. So she was going, so the prisoners were actually fed better than the villagers, you know, who were starving. <laughs> in the Sid Smith was going, I weighed five stone when I came out of here. And it's like... Uh, then she goes in this room. Yeah, we had a radio in here. You didn't know about that, did you? And she was sort of cast <laughs> as a sort. Of, she was cast as this prisoner of war guard. You know. Well, but, I yeah. mean, some of the things they did in places like Colditz and Stalag Luft and were incredible. And again, goes into a lot of detail in that. Do read the book because it's yeah. really interesting stuff. A couple of of sort of more notable members of MI9. One yes. was um, Airy Neve, who he wrote the sort of definitive account of MI9 before. Um, Yes. This book came out because it's been in the last sort of decade or so. More papers have been released, so they know a bit more now than they did. But he was, uh, well, originally he'd been with the Royal Artillery, captured in France in 1940, taken to Colditz, had a couple of escape attempts, finally got out in 41. And that's when MI9 recruited him as an intelligence officer. Right. Um, and of course, you may know Erin Eve, who then went on to become a conservative politician um, and, yeah, and was, he was murdered in an IRA car bomb. Yeah, he was just driving out of the House of uh, Commons car park and uh, a bomb went off just before the 79 election. He was going to be Minister for Northern Ireland and I think that's why the IRA targeted him. But no, he had a, a lustrous life. I mean, he had, you know, uh, I think there's um, uh, all sorts of sort of uh, conspiracy theories about why he was targeted and, you know, what he might have been up to behind the scenes. But uh, incredible achievement to be the first man out of Cordits. I think he just walked out in a German uniform, didn't he? Wearing a German uniform. I think he uniform. did. The original yeah. German, he, he tried to do that originally. And if I remember, he serves, he made a German uniform, painted it with theatrical paint. But under the searchlights, it looked a different colour. And so he oh, was caught. Oh, no. Um, and then he, yeah, it's incredible what some of the they what they yeah. did well, we'll come yeah. on to some yeah, of it yeah but, um, yeah Airy neve he was um in charge of someone else that you might have heard of who was in mi9 which is michael benting oh blimey and michael, michael benting's potty time exactly um of the goons yeah. found a member of the goons did you know what happened to michael benting no. in the raf no so he'd been in the raf and then one day he was queuing up to get his typhoid inoculation right, right. vaccines are good kids have your vaccines yep um however <laughs> Not so good for Michael Benty because they the vials ran out, so they went and got a new one, and they accidentally injected him with a pure culture of typhoid oh my God. instead of the vaccine. So it put him in a coma for six weeks and affected his eyesight, so he couldn't fly anymore. Oh, disaster! So he ended up being seconded to MI9. 
Blimey. Yeah. But that's not going to happen to you guys, so still have your vaccines. Have your vaccines. Um, (laughs) Yes, I don't think anymore they keep the vials of the... Pure pure dillness. Pure culture of typhoid in the same place as they keep the... uh, Things have moved on. So why is escape and evasion important, John? Uh, Because... Prisoners of the war are a great source of intelligence for both sides. So if you've been behind lines, you can say, you know, you can say where the army is based or where gun emplacements are or where, you know, air force bases are. And they, you do, A, you don't want your prisoners of war giving them, being tortured into giving military secrets away. Um, so, yeah, um, that's very keen. You're very keen to get them back. Yeah, absolutely. MI9 was created at the end of 1939. So obviously Hitler invades Poland September 1939. And yeah. we're in this, what they call the phony war period. Yeah. So sort of between the invasion of Poland and um, the uh, invasion of France and the Low Countries, it's yeah. this period where not a lot happens. Some things happen, but not a lot. And uh, during that time, the Joint Intelligence Committee, which is the committee of representing all the different MI things, mm-hmm. they get together to discuss the fate of what will happen to British servicemen in enemy-occupied territory or POW camps when, right. if, when things escalate in Western Europe. So they create this um, unit, MI9, and their main functions are that they would collect and distribute information to British captured prisoners, right. um, that they would train military personnel on escape and evasion techniques. So if you, while you were being trained to fly a plane or do whatever you're being trained to do for the war effort, you would also be trained how to escape and evade capture. They would produce and issue escape aids um, and maps and plans for escape. What was the MI9 code name for escape aids? This is Q, is it? This is Q. Q from the bottom Even I know what Q is. So Q wasn't a person, essentially, in MI9. I think Q was the... the it is in the films, but in the in the MI9, Q was the name given to the actual escape aids themselves, or the gadgets and things. And yeah. they would also provide financial compensation to any people in enemy territories, helping people to escape. Yeah, and, and then they, when the escapers uh, or evaders, you know, got back, they'd in, sort of interrogate them, wouldn't they? And gather, A, they had to check that they hadn't been turned, uh, but they yeah. would gather any intelligence and ensure uh, um, that, uh, that they were definitely on our side. So MI9 yeah. began using... Female interrogators, didn't they? Uh, they did. Unlike other sections of the war office, women work was beyond typing and translation work. They were actually got them being the tough cookie, sort of questioning them, cross-examining them, making sure that they were telling yes. the truth. Which yeah, is the only other female interrogators um, were in naval intelligence um, and they would interrogate German POWs. And who recruited the female naval intelligence interrogators, John? Was it Ian Fleming again? It was Ian Fleming, John. Oh, so, so, um, okay. so Ian Fleming worked for naval intelligence, but they had close ties with MI9. So he would have worked alongside them on um, escape and invasion plans. He, he'd pin them down and he'd go, he'd go can naval you officers? think of an ending for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Because <laughs> 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 I'm stuck with the ending. So they've got their remit, John. They have yeah. to assist escape and evasion. Right. And so how do they go about doing that? How are they going to train people? How are they? Well, they've got a lot of this groundwork have been done in World War One. Right. Because in World War One, um, th- there was a similar unit called MI1A. Are you keeping note of all these, John? I'm yeah, going to yeah, test yeah. you on them later. Okay, it's going to be a test. Yeah. And, uh, and they'd used secret codes to communicate with British offers in World War One. German British, British officers. Camps. What did yes. I say? British offers. That's all oh, right. Okay. British offers. With British officers in German... World War One POW camps, right? And and they had then later on written their memoirs. So you had these written um, 
accounts of how they'd escaped. Right. Which were quite useful documents, obviously. Uh, and it showed the routes they'd taken and the methods they'd used to evade capture, which wow. would go on to be useful in World War Two as well. Uh, you had um, the, the head of MI9 was appointed. He was this this sentence upset me, John, because yeah. it was a 45 year old brigadier. Now, I think of brigadiers as being really old. Sort of I tell you what brigadier. happens, Angela. As you get older, when yeah, David brigadiers Ca- get younger. When David Cameron became leader of the Tory Party, I suddenly hit the leader of the Conservative Party was younger than me, and it was like, oh god, that's like when I was a kid. It was like they were like ancient old men, and suddenly, yeah. that's it. That's the day you become old when the leader of the Tories oh, is younger. God. Than you. He was a bit of a maverick, wasn't he? He was a bit of a risk taker. He's like, I don't. He doesn't play it by the rules, but he gets results. Oh, he does. It? There's this lovely. He, he was. He this lovely quote from one of his colleagues. It says. His bonnet and tartan trues and the panache with which he wore them enhanced the originality, almost eccentricity of his approach to war. Because, John, who wouldn't feel safe going into battle knowing that if you get caught, you'd be shown how to dig a tunnel with nothing but a sporran and some bagpipes? That's what you want. That's that's exactly what you want. I feel confident That's what you want. Yes. So tell me, Angela, how were the personnel trained to escape and evade capture? Because it's all very well sitting around and sort of coming up with all these gadgets. But did Mm. they... It was a sort of... um, Philosophy. Did they have to imbue the armed services with a sort of attitude? So they had a very strong philosophy at MI9 when it came to finding yourself behind enemy lines. And um, Crockett, the leader of MI9, he believed that, and I quote, a fighting man remains a fighting man whether in enemy hands or not, and his duty to continue fighting overrides everything else. So he knew that this wouldn't come naturally to everybody. Not everyone is a natural yes man. Not everyone is a, has got that drive to, you know, yeah. what's captured. So that's something they really had to instill. I, I don't want to use the word brainwash, John, but they had to instill in military personnel yeah. that they had to continue fighting at all costs and escape and invasion was a um, was something you were were. Duty bound sort to tie. Duty yeah. bound to do. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, because lots of people, you might think, oh, that, that you know, that was really scary when I was being bombed. I'm just going to sit the war out in this mm. prisoner war camp and hopefully get home safely to my wife and family. But you know, they were very yeah. much pushing that. You know, you're still fighting behind, but from behind enemy lines. So yeah, absolutely. I get that. They developed a, an active training program for the. Mm-hmm. Later on, it had its own name. They would call it IS Nine, Intelligence okay. School Nine. Okay. And um, from the beginning of 1940, from January 1940, so this is before France has been invaded. Mm-hmm. Um, lectures were given by a former World War One escaper called Johnny Evans, okay. who was lecturing the MI9 staff, preparing them to then train military wow. personnel. And the lectures to the actual personnel, the airmen that were being trained at, up, ready for war, they started two weeks later. Um, and so they were training the British Expeditionary Force, uh, the Fleet Air Arm, and other officer training units. Yeah, and Crockett didn't he go? He went to the British Museum, didn't he? And he asked for fifty of those memoirs. Uh, yeah, the by, ones that have been written by the World War One escapers. And then he yeah. said, "I'm going to send these to my old school in rugby and get the young pupils to write summaries of them all, and we'll use those as the training manuals." It's That's like, right, and I just thought we're missing a trick here, John, because here we are reading the books and making all the notes <laughs> for these podcasts ourselves. Yeah, for the next one. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the book and I'm gonna send it to Invicta Grammar School for girls and let them do it. Is that where you bit went? Of child, bit of child labour never hurt anyone. I did. Invicta, Invicta Grammar School. School for girls in, in Kent. In Kent, yeah, it makes it sound like it's a posh school. It, it does, wasn't. It was yeah. a state school. We just still have the grammar school system. In I Kent. went to I went to Desborough School in Midna. That sounds posh as well, doesn't it? But that was a comp. That's quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, see, so what, what, see, John, my school's posher than yours. It sounds really? it. But mine was all <laughs> mine was an all boys school and we had tires oh, and blazers and houses and all that box. Uh, anyway. Yeah. 
who cares about that? Anyway, I'm going to get the boys from Desborough to write up these summaries for our podcast, like you say, and uh, that'll yeah. save us both a lot of work. What did, they, what did they teach these books? Tell me. So this is the philosophy we were talking about. They, they called it escape-mindedness. And so they, this, that's training these personnel. They have to resist capture for as long as they can. That's their duty. Because right. a pilot missing in action, that's a huge cost for the Allies. To train a fighter pilot costs £15,000. Wow. £10,000 to train a bomber pilot. Right. And the training can take up to three months. So if right. you've downed an airman, you can't just immediately replace him. You know, and... Air supremacy was what we needed against the Luftwaffe, obviously. Yes, okay. So That's... we're not worried. We're not worried about sort of your, your safety and you getting back home to your family. But you know, no. it's the money, really. It costs a lot of money yeah. to uh, train someone to replace you. So if you wouldn't mind escaping and coming back home, that would yeah. uh, save us a lot of money. Oh yeah. yeah, it wasn't about all these poor people. Let's get them out of danger. It was about money and intelligence. Yeah, yeah. And no, fair enough. Fair enough. And gathering intelligence. I think it's a good plan. We're in war. Yeah, no, it's a good um, plan. I approve of it. Yeah. Uh, MI nine. Okay. They tried to keep the morale of captured prisoners up, wouldn't they? Encourage them yeah. to escape. They would communicate them through with like coded messages and news bulletins and items hidden in objects smuggled into the camp, smuggled into the camps. And I think this is all the fun bit of this. Yeah, story. it yeah. is. I mean, they, you know, it was very practical training. They knew that an airman that had been shot down might be disorientated. So if you're flying over occupied France, you've been shot down. Oh God, you know, I'm a bit dizzy. Don't know which yeah. way's up. Don't know which way I'm facing. They teach them things like, well, the first thing you've got to do, mate, is hide your parachute. Yes. It's going to be a dead giveaway. If you walk into the local boulangerie with, you know, 50 metres of silk trailing behind you. Yes, of course. And if they're injured, and they uh, then they, of course, had no choice to surrender, but then they were advised to hide and wait for a regular army troop to come by because they treat you better than the SS. Is that right? That's right. So it's like these little bits of advice. So, yeah, wait yeah. for... Don't surrender to the SS. Surrender to a normal German army troop. They won't harm you as much. Um, they said, uh, you know, if don't don't march is one of the things. Right. They said it's a very British thing to do is to march around the place. Right. And um, they said, pop a beret on so then you look like a Frenchman. Uh, masters Presumably, of disguise. Cu- couple of onions around your neck, striped yeah, baguette, T-shirt. Baguette yeah. under your arm and go, <laughs> Exactly. So, so, yeah, there was a training film, wasn't there? Name, uh, name sorry, rank, no. name and number. Yeah, and that's that. it. So that, that was the film that they made, um, that Crockett made, which showed recruits what tricks the enemy might play to get information from them, like putting microphones in their cell or befriending them with whiskey, which probably would have worked on Crockett with yeah, his yeah. Uh, tartan trues and his, you know. Um, so basically, they were teaching them to resist all the things that they were doing to German POWs who were at Trent Park at the same time. So, you know, they, they yeah. sort of... And the training lectures sort of un- had underlined that if you're captured and in a prisoner of war camp the senior british officer will be tasked with forming a secret escape committee with all with yeah. the other british prisoners of wars and that commit the committee was responsible for authorizing escape plans you couldn't have anyone just doing it you know making it up as they went along and that and they'd sort of liaise via coded messages with mi9 to inform them what escape and invasion devices were needed in that particular camp and then uh, mi9 would sort of dispatch these devices is that right that's with, right uh, with coded messages and and what items to expect in the parcels it all sounds That's very sophisticated right. so yeah because like you say you couldn't just have people in a prison of war camp trying their own way to escape willy-nilly they're not going to make it whereas yeah. if well, they would encourage all the british prisoners in one camp to form a committee and and sort of try to do it as as um covertly and successfully as possible so these devices we keep banging oh yeah that's this is yeah, gadgets gadgets q so even bond. i so even bond. i've never watched james bond get excited about all the gadgets and the spyware i, I just was i do love spies i do love cold war history i'm just more 
Le Carre yeah. than Fleming, that's all. Um, more Le Carre than Fleming, darling. Yes, darling. And um, many of Fleming's inventions came from MI9. Um, right. Because, like I say, he liaised with them. So the two men responsible for MI9 gadgets, uh, yeah. they were called Clayton Clutty Hutton. Okay. And Charles Fraser Smith. And uh, it's thought that a combination of the two of those guys were probably the inspiration for Fleming's Q. Right, okay. Clayton Hutton was the the, the sort of most Q-like one okay. of them, I think. He sounds like quite the character. So he turned up for an interview at MI9 for unspecified war work. That's right. Any sort of secret service work would be advertised, but obviously not what you were going to be doing. Yeah. Um, and he had been an officer in World War One, but during that interwar period, he was a broadcaster and film producer. Ah, cool. Yeah. So he went and met with Crockett, the head of MI9. Yeah. And he was asked to just talk about himself as part of the interview. And during that, he said that he'd wanted a career on stage, but his mother wouldn't allow it. Yeah. And that he loved magicians and illusionists and that he'd once tried to outwit Houdini. Right. And it turned out he'd once challenged Houdini to escape from a wooden box that had been built on stage in front of the audience so it couldn't be interfered with. And Houdini had agreed to this. But what Hutton didn't realise was that Houdini then went and bribed the carpenter ah, who was going clever. to be building the box to modify the box so he could escape. That was his job interview, was it? That was his job interview. He tells that story and Crockett hires him. Yeah, well, like, Fair um, enough. Yeah, that's just what we're looking for. Yeah. At, at this point, Crockett's not even told him what the job is. So right, he then okay. explains to him, right, we need escape devices. Um, but most items are too big to smuggle into POW camps, so we need tiny escape aids that can be oh, concealed inside yeah. like everyday items, like shaving kits, tubes of toothpaste, whatever. And um, Crockett told him there's no previous plans to work from, no official records, put on your thinking cap, do what you like. Very different to recruitment in those days. Wasn't right. it? It's, very, it's very different to when we were graduates. Guardian, creative and media on a Monday afternoon. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just, it seemed like the right chap you'll do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No LinkedIn or aptitude test back there. No, yeah, no, no. Myers Briggs tests. So, no, yeah. just like, oh, you probably went to the right school. You'll exactly. Do. My passport to the whole curious business has been a casual reference to my thwarted efforts to get the better of Harry Houdini, is what he said. That's what he? Hutton said, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Okay. Bit of a maverick. And he, he like uh, Crockett, was a bit of a maverick. Himself. He would bump up against the bureaucracy quite a lot during the war. Um, because and, and understandably, because he would be demanding money and materials for all these gadgets that he's making, yeah. but he wasn't able to tell the pen pushers what they of were, course, you know, what he secret. was doing. God, yeah. So um, uh, this is a quote from his uh, memoirs. He says, there were days when the Treasury's cheese pairing attitude almost drove me to revolt. Time and again, I had to abandon some vital project to answer letters from civil servants whose imbecile queries suggested that the writers had not yet realised that a state of emergency existed. During those dark days when German bombs and incendiaries were raining down on London, these blinkered pen pushers were crippling over pennies and halfpennies. Yes. <laughs> yes, he would, uh, he would make escape and evasion aids to be smuggled into German prisoner war camps like um, yeah. tiny compasses on the back of buttons uh, yeah. or ink inside shaving brushes or silk maps or tissue maps hidden inside pencils, foreign yeah. currency rolled inside uh, paper in a tube of toothpaste. Incredible. Absolutely. It was all invaluable for a disorientated escapee, especially yes. compasses. Um, yes. Like, you know, if you've just landed out of a shot down plane and you don't know which way you're facing and you don't yeah. know, you know. So um, they even they made razor blades in shaving kits that were magnetised north. Wow. So they could use their razor blades. They hid compasses in pens, pipes, badges, even in sweets, boiled sweets. Yeah. Um, and during the war, 
MI9 was supplied with over two million of these. Yes, I mean there's over a million, a million, over a million buttons, uh, which had yeah. compasses hidden inside them, and they would sc- unscrew the wrong way, so that if any German just tested right. if it unscrewed, he'd be doing it the wrong way. So they, yeah, it was yes, counter- they unscrewed. Was it? Hang on, lefty. Righty tighty lefty yeah. Lucy, yeah. So counter, yeah. Righty tighty um, lefty Lucy. Lucy, <laughs> have you never heard that? No. Righty tighty lefty well, Lucy for doing goodness. things up and undoing them. You'll never forget it now. Don't say this podcast isn't educational. <laughs> I'm not the only person who's used lefty Lucy righty tighty. Yeah, See, Spike is giving me the up. thumbs up. He knows. Okay, good work. Um, Did they have saws as well? Didn't they? They had. Um, uh, it's with with edged only on one side, so they could be hung and hidden inside the trouser legs. Yeah, uh, you want to be careful with that, don't you? Hanging a saw in your trousers. And these could usually saws, giggly saws, giggly saws. I don't know how to pronounce it. They could yeah. cut through one inch bars and be hidden in a shoelace. The RAF yeah. boot, called an escape boot, in a cloth loop on the boot, where a small knife was concealed, so an airman could cut away the top of the boot and leave just a black shoe that looked like civilian footwear. Yeah. And the heel had silk maps, a compass, and a file in it. Um, you know, it was had everything. It had to be abandoned in the end because uh, they just weren't warm enough for winter flights and they were completely useless. Yeah. But apart from they, that, but apart from that, they're very genius. creative. So how did they get stuff into the camps? Well, when they were in camps, prisoners, and, and when we're talking about the prisoners of the PO war camps, often officers, and there would be a sort of respect, a certain level of respect afforded yes. to officers. Geneva Convention, and, you know, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So they were allowed to receive new uniforms and right. that gave opportunity for smuggling in yeah. escape aid and the lining and, and yeah yeah Hutton he would modify a uniform so that the lining could be removed to make a civilian looking suit like a sort of more tasteful stripper velcro thing but but with yeah Charles Fraser Smith had gone to Morocco at, at 21 as a Christian missionary hadn't he and he was advised to return when the war broke out and he was recruited after giving a church sermon where he talked about his missionary work and how unorthodox methods were often used to stop projects collapsing there happened to be some intelligence chief in the congregation and he was recruited as an assistant in the Ministry of Supply, which was a cover for a slightly less innocent work as a floating production and procurement man for MI6 and MI9. He'd, he'd procure things like fake German clothing for escape. And this was difficult because it was uh, easy to be betrayed by the way something was made. So German Jewish refugees were drafted in to help and um, they would make sure the labels were right, that the buttons were sewn the way German ma- manufacturers would do it, etc. That's right. There were German Jewish refugees in Britain who were sort of drafted in because they would know the German manufacturing methods yes. to make sure that everything was accurate, like the buttons were attached the way that they would be in Germany and things to, yeah. for these sort of fake German uniforms. Yeah. And they would send things like, so um, they'd get grey woolen blankets. Yeah, I love this detail. And on them, there would be a complete pattern for an item yeah. of clothing. So say for a pair of German-style trousers, yeah, in invisible, an invisible, in invisible ink. ink. And then yeah. what they would do, they would smuggle in separately the chemicals that help you see the invisible ink in jam jars or dried milk tins. And depending on the chemical, the grey woolen blanket, when they dipped it, you'd be able to see the, the lines to cut around and it would turn the grey into either dark blue, field grey or brown to make a German uniform out of these blankets. Incredible. It's insane. Incredible. There was one night in 1940, two MI9 operatives turned up uh, at the house of a German Jewish refugee in Britain. He yeah. fled Dachau and... Um, they, they took from his house some shoes and shoelaces and any clothes that he had with German 
labels so that they could copy them meticulously. Yeah. And they also took his German typewriter. So MI9 used this German typewriter to create authentic looking oh, ask, yeah, German yeah, documents. Because everything was so different back then in different countries. Yeah. And then they and then they set up these fake charities, didn't they, to send in the mm. parcels that could be used to smuggle escape aid. So uh, they never used Red Cross parcels. And this was really important because if that had been discovered and Red cross aid stopped that would be disastrous for our prisoners who relied on yeah. those food and blankets and stuff some of these invented charities the prisoners leisure house fund the brewers society of great britain the licensed victuallers sports association welsh provident society I like yeah, well, so I, i'd be hooked by that that's yeah, I, it's good I, enough I for me they're, they're all good enough and tell so, us about the board games this is a great well book. they would also send in board games they were allowed to send board games to pow's because Boredom yeah. in the camp, actually, you know, you don't want a load of yeah. your prisoners to be bored and they might play up and they might, you know. So they allow board games in. So Waddington's, the board game maker, they they were recruited by MI9 and they made special Monopoly sets with escape devices inside them. Oh, that's hilarious. So I'm, not, I'm not sure how far you get with an iron and a top hat. I think Cluedo might have been better. At least he's yeah. got some weapons. So just but, um, I'm just trying to unpick the logic of that there, Angela. So they didn't want the prisoners to be bored. So they let in Monopoly. <laughs> yeah, I quite agree. But Trivial Pursuit hadn't been invented then, Exactly, John, yeah. So what could yeah. you do? So inside, um, yeah, there were sort of maps inside the hardboard and, you know. Uh, yeah, inside you the have, cards, there'd be maps and things. Yeah, you have uh, one £200, uh, dig a tunnel and escape to Trafalgar Square or whatever. So, yeah, exactly. Hutton bought uh, 20,000 cigarette tins to make escape pats for airmen. Uh, he, he knew he could... Um, he could easily shift the cigarettes and cover the cost of his acquisitions for the escape aids. So that's it's clever. It. So he was quite clever. I like yeah. that way of thinking. Go, well, I buy I bought twenty thousand cigarette tins full of cigarettes. Sell all the cigarettes. Pay for the escape. Yeah, aids. yeah. Um, and he fiddled with them and fiddled with them, trying to get everything they needed really small to go in, yeah. so they could just they would fit in the sort of breast pocket. They were tiny, not like big tobacco tins, tiny cigarette yeah. tins. And each pack, um, each packed tin would contain yeah. twenty four tablets of malted milk sweets. Pack of chewing gum, bar yep. of peanut blended food, six acid drops, a paper map of Germany and northern France. Wow. A bar of chocolate, a roll God. of adhesive tape, packet of matches, miniature saw, a compass, one of those magnetized razors we talked about, a length of thread and 10 benzedrine tablets for energy. Wow. Um, which he'd done really well until somebody pointed out that he'd forgotten to put a water bottle in it. Ah, oh, picky. So he started again and Ration Pack version 2 had all of that in it, plus a rubber bottle and 24 water purifying tablets and they were a huge success they were issued to every single airman and wow. they'd also have 12 pounds in cash in the relevant currency of the country over which they might be shot down wow um, so all we need now yeah. is your, your iphone and your credit cards isn't it really i mean exactly <laughs> there was actually i found something john um all of these things that they invented there was a booklet was created that sort of listed all the escape aids and it was called per adua libertas most secret Okay. And it was a, like a printed catalogue of this covert equipment that was produced at the time. And um, one was sold. I found one that was sold because I thought, oh, it would be amazing to have one of them. And um, one was sold in the last 10 years or so. And it was £5,250 it went for. Wow, so, amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, I won't be getting one of those. So, but these were essential yeah. escape aids. And then the yeah. maps, of course, were really important. Uh, Bartholomew's yeah. of Edinburgh offered all their maps free of copyright uh, fees. Saving the War Off is a fortune. Over 300,000 copies of their maps were reproduced for MI9. And that was yeah. uh, very valuable to the airmen who were, you know, uh, taking it. huge risks flying over um, occupied Europe. That's it. Maps and compasses. 
that were essentially yeah. didn't have an iPhone to sort them out, did no, they? Couldn't get on Google, no Google Maps. No. no, no. So I reckon we'll take a short break there, John. Fantastic. While, so you check all your buttons for compasses, and I'm going to go and check on the airmen I've got hiding in my loft. And we'll, see uh, you we'll back be back here shortly. Hello and welcome back to We Are History. Angela is teaching me all about MI9, the military intelligence that dealt with escaped prisoners, helping them get out of a prisoner of war camp, um, soldiers behind enemy lines. Where had we got to, Angela? Well, so MI9 have trained up all the military personnel on how to escape and invade, and they have supplied them with the escape aids that they need. The airmen are being sent out with their little cigarette boxes full of everything. That they need but things are hotting up now john we're, we're coming out of that come out of that phony war period that we yes. talked about before so mi9 had to keep up the flow of these escape aids into pow camps and um was trying to establish how many british personnel had been captured in the german advance across france and the low countries right. by the end of june 1940 15 to 20 british personnel had successfully escaped by their own means and arrived back in britain where they were debriefed right. by mi9 so, I mean, the evacuation of Dunkirk rescued like 300,000 Allied troops mm. via uh, British ships and whatever. But 2,000, they reckon, wounded British and Commonwealth soldiers had to be left behind. And there's, and yeah. there's no, you know. So an estimated 50,000 British soldiers were taken prisoners of war during the fighting in northern France, um, with around 5,000 hiding behind enemy lines. So we're talking about huge numbers here that, who have got, you know, to rely on these little kits and their little compasses in their buttons and and their, and their wits to live off the land and to, to, to hide Absolutely. in barns and steal well, eggs or whatever. Well, obviously, well, the captured were personnel, they were taken to POW camps, obviously, in Straight Germany. Away, yeah. um, and at this stage, MI9 still didn't have any secret communication arranged with them. Like, they were planned for it, but it hadn't been set up, really. Yeah. Um, there were still escapes, um, as seen in Escape from Colditz and The Great Escape. You may have watched The Great Escape. The of course I watched The Great Luft. Escape. I've done, I yeah. wrote the chi- I co-wrote Chicken Run. We had to watch The Great Escape over again. Of course you did. Of course you <laughs> so did. It's, escape, it's The Great um, Escape with Chickens, that is. British prisoners of war uh, in yeah. Germany had a big advantage over the um, other prisoners of war in that Britain wasn't occupied. So any sort of French prisoners of war or um, Dutch or Belgians, they it was much harder for them to resist and to escape because if they did, their families were also in danger because their yes. homes yes. were in occupied territory. So it was a lot harder for them to be disruptive in the camps or to attempt escape, whereas obviously British POWs didn't have that concern. It was just about getting themselves out. Their families weren't at risk. Right, right. The people who really took the risks... Um, were the people that ran the escape lines. Right, so we're talking, now, about, yeah, talking about the, the locals who were part of the resistance, who, who sort of helped Allied airmen who were, or, or soldiers who got stuck behind enemy lines. I mean, soldiers hiding in France or Belgium, they, they tried to escape by either heading across France to get to the Channel or by going south to Vichy, France and out via Marseille, mm-hmm. sometimes over the Pyrenees. Uh, they risked arrest by Vichy police, but are less likely to be sent back over the border to the Germans, especially early on in the war. Others yeah. would try and go via Switzerland. But you're sort of making this up as you go along, aren't you? It's pretty yeah, incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. So Britain soon learned, by the, the, as these early airmen were getting back, they learned yeah. that from them that the resistance movement in France, Holland and Belgium was strong and that there were many ordinary people that were willing to support the Allies from within 
the enemy territory. A little shout out here to our spy pigeon episode where oh, we yes. tell some great stories about particularly Belgian resistance. Yes. Um, so have a listen to that one if you haven't listened to it. Spy pigeons. Yeah. So most of these escape lines crossed France and relied, like you say, on this local resistance. And counterintuitively, because you'd think they'd go, you know, the quickest way to the coast or the quickest yeah. way to the borders. But actually, it was safer to go across the longer route because the shortest routes were the ones the Germans expected them to take and therefore they were heavily guarded. Yes, yes. So you've got a whole industry there of local people forging identity cards and mm -hmm. papers and issuing civilian clothing for escapers and evaders. And local guides who would help evaders over difficult terrain and people who'd give them food and shelter, all at enormous risks to themselves, Absolutely. Uh, uh, but doing it for the same cause. Yeah, it wasn't all quite as easy as they made it look on Allo Allo. <laughs> so um, these resistance helpers, as they were called, um, they would tune their radios every evening at nine o'clock to listen to BBC News and they would hear Beethoven's Fifth. Dun, and dun, the notes, dun, dun. Yeah, which represents Morse code V for victory. Yes. Um, which would precede the phrase Ici Londres. Oh, and followed good, by Merci. Ici Londres. I thought there might be some voiceover producers listening, you know. Ici Londres. Let's have a bit, bit, bit Bradley, I think. Ici Londres. Ici Londres. Yeah, it probably wasn't very many women saying it. Uh, and they'd be followed by these personal messages, which seemed quite meaningless, but actually were coded messages for the resistance helpers about where fresh supplies were arriving by parachute or if there was an agent drop or right, whatever. So it, all the supplies they needed, they would find out how where they were coming through coded messages on BBC Radio. Yeah. And these escape lines, they were run by MI9, by SOE, which is the Special Operations Executive, um, which was formed by Churchill in uh, July 1940 to undertake espionage, sabotage and... Um, reconnaissance in occupied territories and mi6 mi6 had overall command at the beginning uh, of all of it but mi9 run their own lines my friend and, uh my friend giles milton has just written a book on soe or recently book, wrote a book on soe uh, oh we should Church do an episode on, yeah he'd come on and talk yeah, about it with us i'm sure yeah that'd be really oh, well, it, i find them really fascinating yeah, uh, and, yeah. and they were quite universally disliked by other intelligence services. i know these guys of course <laughs> imagine these guys all cooperating of course there's massive rivalry between all these different oh, yeah. operations and, and allegations that one of them risked the lives of one of their other guys and well others. i think they could be accused of being a bit gung-ho the soe yes, and a yes. bit sort of because they hadn't been in they, they weren't recruited from intelligence services yeah. so they hadn't had that yeah. training and i think they could sometimes maybe go in a bit feet yes. first but anyway so one of the first escape lines got escapers to marseille and then spain and gibraltar because of course spain and portugal were neutral and escapers would uh, maybe get over the pyrenees and they'd be met in madrid by the british consulate staff who'd then get the evaders to gibraltar and then from there they'd sail home i see because obviously spain was technically neutral but obviously sort of, it was you know yeah. we just followed the spanish civil war they they yeah. they Pals you know, with Hitler. They had to get them to Gibraltar to extradite them because, yes, Spain, although neutral technically, wasn't completely safe. Angela, um, tell me about the Pat O'Leary line. The Pat O'Leary line. So that was the first of the escape lines, uh, yeah. the official escape lines that were set up, named after someone called Pat O'Leary. Where was Pat O'Leary from, John, obviously? From Connemara. No, Belgium, that's okay. right. And his real name was Albert-Marie Gris. He was a medical officer in the Belgian army, um, but he did his secret work under the name of a friend who was obviously from, that's right, uh, Canada. Okay. Um, 
And the line, it, well, it was originally run by someone called Ian Garrow. He was captured and Pat O'Leary took it over and it became known as the Pat line. Pat O'Leary himself was eventually captured in March 1943 by the Gestapo and the line was taken over by a 61-year-old woman named Marie Dissart whose codename was Françoise, and she revived the line, and it's often referred to as the Françoise line as well. And she was one, John, of, and this is why I wanted to focus on this line and, and one other, these formidable women who helped these escape lines to function. Um, around half the people facilitating escape lines were women because it was felt they could travel across the country more freely without arousing yes, suspicion. Yes. Yeah. Um, Airy Neve, in his account of MI9, he wrote about Francoise. He said she smoked all day long with a black holder permanently in her mouth. She seemed never to go to bed and attired in a black petticoat lived entirely on black coffee. Fantastic. She sounds Fantastic. great. I just yeah. want to be her friend. This is a little aside, but many of the helpers on the pat line ended up dying at the hands of the Gestapo because there was a double agent uh, called Harold Cole, who oh, was right. a con man, yes. petty criminal, and he'd worked the line and then uh, was turned by the Germans in December 41. And he thought he, he betrayed about 150 of these oh. resistance helpers and about 50 of whom were killed. Wow. He survived the war, um, but he was killed while resisting arrest by French police in 46. Wow. Um, yeah, and I've Nasty heard him described work. as like the, one of the worst traitors in the war. Wow. So there you go. Wow. Um, but I really wanted to talk about André de Jong, who was this incredible woman. Um, she had been inspired by, you know, Edith Cavell. She was a British nurse in, the first World in War, World yeah. War One, yeah. And she'd been shot um, for helping to get 200 Allied soldiers out of occupied Belgium. Yeah. So André de Jong. Yeah, she was like a 23-year-old nurse when Belgium was occupied. And she moved to Brussels and became a Red Cross volunteer, uh, you know, ministering to captured Allied troops. Uh, but at this time, there were like... Lots of Allied soldiers who hadn't been evacuated to Dunkirk and were hiding. So she organised a series of safe houses for them, getting them civilian clothing, false ID papers, visiting the sick and wounded soldiers. Uh, that enabled her to make links with this network of safe housekeepers who were trying to work out ways to get the soldiers back to Britain. Yeah, through her working with the wounded, she'd found all these hidden soldiers as well. So in spring 41, she organised with a group of friends to get Allied soldiers and airmen out of Belgium and back to Britain and this was yeah. the origin of what came to be known as the Comet Line which was the biggest escape line in World War II um, someone in that original group of friends betrayed them but her and her friend Depe they teamed up with a family called the De Griefs, a Belgian family and they attempted their first crossing of the Spanish border in July 1941 with 10 Belgians and Miss Richards who was supposedly an English woman but actually was a Belgian secret agent and they crossed the Pyrenees together successfully. But after um, De Jong and Depe left them, their charges were actually arrested. So De Jong knew that just getting them to Spain wasn't enough. They needed to make that contact with the British consulate so that their onward journey through Spain could be managed safely. Right. And then on a subsequent um, crossing, she, uh, um, she went with her charges, didn't she, to Bill Bauer? Mm -hmm. And uh, met uh, met Monday. Monday, Sir Michael yes. Cresswold of MI9, who'd become a Code handler. Name Monday. Yeah. Yeah. And after three weeks of investigations uh, into who she was and ensuring she wasn't a German agent, they deemed her trustworthy and they agreed uh, to working with her after hearing testimony from three British servicemen she'd already brought out of occupied Europe. Yeah. She had the codenum Dede. Dede? Yeah. Dede. And Dede, and the line was known as the Dede line. And after that, the comic line. Yeah, so she she was very forceful, very much she was very young, 
Mm. Uh, but she insisted that the line remain independent from MI9 in its decision yeah. making. So she went to MI9. She said, I want it to be Belgian chiefs on the ground because it, yeah. everything, she needed swift decisions needed to be made. And she yeah. didn't want to wait for messages to come back and forwards from London. All she wanted from MI9 was the funding which they supplied. So they would supply 6,000 Belgian francs and 1,400 Spanish pesetas, which together is about 2,000 US dollars in today's money, for yeah. each Allied airman or soldier that was exfiltrated. Right. Um, she refused to have a radio operator at her end because um, she felt that was too dangerous. Yes. Um, so her only contact with London was via Monday, this agent in yes. Bilbao. Yeah, I mean, all these people who were working on the ground didn't know they were you know, working for MI9 or working, you know, using MI9 because it all had to be in cells so that if they were captured and tortured, they wouldn't give away loads of secrets. Yeah. Um, you only knew what the person before you in the yeah. line was doing and the person yeah. after you in yeah. the line was doing. So you would be handed these soldiers, you would take them to the next point and then, yeah. you know, you didn't know the whole existence of the line unless you were running it like Day Day was. Yeah, and she recruited many women to work on the line. One of them explained... The helpers were working for the line and did not know it was called the Comet Line. They discovered the name once the war was over. They were just obeying instructions from their particular chief in the chain, as you say. They did not need to know anything else. All they knew was they were helping the Allies to succeed in the war. And that was enough for them. And that yeah. was enough for them. Yeah. Um, the estimates of the number of times that De Jong, Dede, successfully escorted downed airmen across the border into Spain in 1941 and 1942 vary from 16 to 24 round trips. So the number of people, mostly airmen, she escorted successfully is about 118. Fantastic. On the 15th of January, 1943, um, De Jong and three airmen and a Basque woman whose safe house they were in, they were arrested after they were betrayed by a local farm worker. Yes, and she was sent to prison yeah. in Paris, wasn't she? Then to Ravensbrück yeah. concentration camp. She admitted to being the leader of the Comet Line to protect her father, who was under suspicion. But they wouldn't believe that this slight young woman was anything more than a minor helper, and it probably saved her life. Yeah, absolutely. She, um, like I say, she confessed, but they didn't believe her. But she confessed because she didn't want them to think it was her father running the yeah, line, yeah. Uh, which it wasn't, it was her. Um, and she did survive. And in fact, after the war, she went back and finished her nursing studies. And then she went and worked in leper colonies in the Belgian Congo and then in Ethiopia. And um, you just think, oh, my God, this woman is incredible. She's I feel so, yeah. you just go, I just, what have I done with my life? Um, when she was in uh, Belgian Congo, she met the author Graham Greene and he actually recorded her candid account of her experiences in the war in his journal, which was then published in 1961. And um, she was awarded many honours for her wartime efforts. She got the United States Medal of Freedom with Golden Palms and she got the British George Medal and the French Legion d'honneur and lots wow. of... So she was well recognised and she Good. she survived until 2007. She died aged 90. Fantastic. Well, thank you, oh, yeah. Dede. Thank you, Dede, woman. for getting all those airmen out and all those Absolutely. poor British soldiers. I mean, there's a very sort of... Uh, we have a very uh, uh, clichéd uh, view of those uh, prisoner of war camps and Colditz and the Great mm. Escape. But actually, those films... It says in the book, uh, they're pretty accurate. They sort of stick mm. to what did happen. They don't need to make it up because it's so, uh, the stories are so amazing. They don't need to embellish them and sort of uh, uh, add a lot of elaborate detail. Those, you know, yeah. There were amazing gadgets. There were very creative minds on this. And a lot of it seems stranger than fiction. So they just stuck to what really happened. And and some of the things they did, like we just didn't have time to go into detail, but, you know, in these prisoner of war camps, they were building radio sets. They yeah. were literally tunneling out of yeah they were you know the Build things that they managed the, to do without being caught building a glider, glider in the loft in, of coldest yeah yeah they never got to fly it but it was they made one it would have flown they reckon they, they looked yeah they looked, 
But so, yeah, incredible uh, stories. I mean, everyone's favourite bit is the the notion of all these clever gadgets and mm. monopolies boards that converted into maps and had things hidden inside the the pieces. Um, incredibly creative minds, and um, they made a massive difference, you know, to to all those people who got who made it out. So yeah. thank you, thank you, Helen Fry, for your interesting book. Yes, do do go and read it, and um, do follow us on Twitter. Yes. At We Are History Pod, go onto your whatever pod device you're listening to this from and give uh, us a five set, star review. Your, your crystal <laughs> yeah, set in the loft of your prisoner of war camp. Yeah, give us a review and um, we will be back again next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Bye.